market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Conor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at the paper and here with me in the legendary, I think it's fair to say, Margot's, which is the parliamentary bar, is Alistair Grant, our political editor. Um, Alistair, explain why we're here. Well, I just thought we needed to make this podcast a little bit special, a little bit more of a moment, (laughs) because uh, Connor, very sadly, is leaving the Scotsman for pastures new. Probably shouldn't say yet where you're going. Uh, He's got a great opportunity, just put it that way, he's going somewhere really, really good. But sadly, this is his last podcast, this is his last episode of The Steamy. So I just thought, why not? Why not have it in Margot's? This is, I mean, to put it in context for people listening, this is where a lot of the kind of political stories, the kind of political gossip comes from in Holyrood. People often come down to Margot's on a Thursday evening. If you ever read any kind of political diaries in some of the newspapers, a lot of the stories come from nights spent in Margot's. So it's got it's got a huge political tradition behind it, and it's obviously people might have gathered named after informally named after Margot Macdonald, mm-hmm. uh, the former MSP. It was, it was the sort of place I remember when I first started at, at doing politics in Scotsman's Hut. It's like, oh, Margot's was this kind of fantastic place of joy and wonder. <laughs> With, you know, in comparison to other parts of the building, which were very work-based. And it's quite a cosy place. It's a very cosy it's, it's place. A, it's a nice place to, to come and have a drink. But yeah, no, no, I'm, I, it's my last steamy, and I think that's been nearly three years of the steamy. Um, so very sad to be leaving it behind at the Scotsman. Um, but hopefully you all at home will keep listening. Let's turn to the actual reason why we're here, which is to talk about the latest in Scottish politics, which shockingly is yet another week of Michael Matheson and his iPad. Came up at FMQ's today again. Um, Alistair, take us through what, what we were hearing from the two leaders. Yeah, I mean, just to, this is obviously the, the story about the £11,000 data roaming bill that was racked up on Michael Matheson's Holyrood issued iPad while he was on a family holiday in Morocco. The story broke a couple of weeks ago. I think it was two weeks, just over two, two weeks, weeks ago. Of the day, I think, yeah. It's not been out of the headlines on a daily basis since, pretty much. And we obviously had that very emotional statement from Michael Matheson last week in the Scottish Parliament, in which he revealed that his the bill had been racked up by his two teenage sons watching football matches while they were abroad in Morocco on this family holiday. Before this point, he'd been saying that it, the, the the iPad story was used for parliamentary work. This family holiday it's worth saying, took place over the New Year period, so some 11 months ago, and the Scottish Parliament was originally going to pick up the bill for this, so £11,000 of taxpayers' money, but Michael Matheson says that when he found out his children were involved, he agreed to pay the money back, and we had that emotional statement in Parliament. We then had a lot of questions around the fact that Michael Matheson had found out about his children's involvement a few days before that, and had had interviews with journalists since then, including myself, um, when I spoke to him briefly after an NHS Glasgow event, in which he'd effectively lied to the media. He hadn't been honest about that, about the the fact that there was personal use in that iPad, about the fact that other people had used it. Um, So there's a lot of questions about his own integrity on the back of this. 
and it came up at FMQs, it came up at First Minister's Questions by the Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross, but it's worth saying that shortly before First Minister's Questions started, we had a statement from the Scottish Parliamentary Corporate Body, which is a cross-party group of MSPs who effectively oversee the running of the Scottish Parliament, yeah. and they have agreed to launch an investigation into this £11,000 bill. Michael Matheson had self-referred to them, mm -hmm. but there was a bit of a kind of... It was unclear whether there was going to be an investigation because there isn't a process for self-referring <laughs> yourself. So it was unclear what the mechanism for that would be, but they have decided to investigate this. And yeah, Douglas Ross, unsurprisingly, going on this, but also Anna Sarwar. Yeah, and absolutely. I think it was interesting that we had... It was the first time I actually thought that Hamza Yusuf had a re relatively reasonable response to the whole thing. I mean, personally, I still think that, you know, it's a matter of time when it when it comes to Michael Matheson's future. But in response to Douglas Ross, he did have quite a good response, which was, well, Douglas, you uh, forgot to declare £28,000 worth of income. And we all accepted that, didn't we? And I thought that was quite good. And um, he had less to say in response to Anasawa, but it was one of those FNQs where you kind of looked at Hamza Yusuf as First Minister and you could kind of feel his authority slipping away every answer he gave. He is effectively being asked to defend the indefensible here. We know, I don't really think it's a controversy anymore in the sense of like, we know that Michael Matheson lied to the press. Any reasonable reading of what he said to, in answer to you and in answer to others last week demonstrates that he wasn't telling the truth, particularly now we know the timeline. And Hamza Yusuf has made the political decision to retain someone who is fundamentally his ally and friend in the cabinet. It does appear to me as if he's made a calculated decision to go, Michael Matheson, I can't afford to lose you from the cabinet, no matter what nonsense is thrown my way over the next few weeks. I mean, he does seem to have made a decision to stand by him. Uh, like you say, he's a close ally, he's a friend. They've made this decision that this is the route they're going to go down. And I think you're right, I mean, during I thought it was interesting during First Minister's questions that his position almost became more sticky as time went on yeah. just because he had to repeatedly keep saying that Michael Matheson had made mistakes, he hadn't handled it, you know, in the way he should have done, but, you know, he's given this statement to Parliament, he's accounted for why he did it. And I think he said that four or five times. Mm -hmm. He just kept on going back to that line, which, of course, doesn't really address the main point that Michael Matheson was uh, on a very, very generous reading, misleading in his statements to the press. And he's a senior Scottish Government Minister, he's the Health Secretary, uh, one of the most important roles in the Scottish Government, going into a period when the NHS hits the headlines pretty much every second day over the winter months when there's that huge pressure on the health service. Um, so I can understand why he doesn't want to lose Michael mm. Matheson, you don't want to lose a Health Secretary in mm. November Absolutely. when we're going into those winter months. And he's obviously a close political ally, but it'll be interesting to see how the coming days pan out because I, th I think there is this kind of situation now where they've obviously made this decision that effectively what they're doing is hoping that the public and the media will get bored of this mm -hmm. and that the story will eventually disappear just because people are sick of it. And I think this parliamentary investigation means that it will keep boiling over in the background. But in the long run, they may be right. People might get bored of it. The media might get bored of it. I thought what was interesting is that we, we heard, obviously, from a line of argument that I think the last time I heard it was with Boris Johnson and Partygate. I'm not convinced it's the wisest line to go, basically, not comment on whether or not the Michael Matheson lied to Parliament, sorry, lied to the public, and instead go, well, he's just going to get on with the job. That was exactly the line that we kept hearing from Boris Johnson 
over and over again. We've published on the Scotsman today. It's worth, worth folk interested in this story going to read it. The full transcript is something that we do in, in Hollywood every week, which is post First Minister's questions briefing with the First Minister's official spokesperson. Now this is on the record, but off camera. The convention has always been that we don't name who the spokesperson is. But it's an opportunity for us as journalists to put certain questions to the First Minister in effect that hadn't been answered at First, First Minister's questions or come off the back of it. And obviously, we'd had six questions, I think, minimum, from the two main leaders about whether Michael Masterson had told the truth. I asked the First Minister's spokesperson several times whether he told the truth, and it took them probably about five minutes to get to the point to say, <laughs> we don't understand it not to be true. <laughs> Such a tortured form of words. To, to, which I, to which the question was, so is it true? And then it was, our understanding is it's true, yes. And then the follow-up question was, was, so was his statement the week before true? To which the answer was, these are personal statements, these are matters for Michael Matheson. I mean, you sit through what was 15 minutes of that, I mean, half of which was dedicated to Michael Matheson, and you go, surely they know, surely they recognise that this is, you know, defending the indefensible. And you do wonder, have Humza Yusuf's advisers taken him aside, shook him, you know, by the shoulders and gone, this isn't worth the trouble. You could bring him back in six months or a year in a cabinet reshuffle. No one will bat an eyelid. He just needs to go. Yeah, I mean, as I say, they've, they've made that decision. They're, they now have to really stick by it. I think the only way, I mean, if we're speculating, the only way that Michael Matheson could resign now is to come out and make it a kind of personal decision that he is made the personal choice to step down to he's become a distraction you know all that kind of language we're quite used to and um, we can't really have Hamza Yusuf sacking him because no. he stood by him up until this point yeah. so and that may yeah happen Michael Mastin may decide that actually this has gone on for too long mm. and that it's time to step back but it feels like if he's not up until now I don't know why he would now yeah particularly yeah. when you've got this parliamentary process that's ongoing and, and could last a while to be honest. And I think as well, you know, we were speaking to some government sources last week uh, and some party sources last week about all of this. You know, government don't really want to be involved in it because they view it as a party matter. And then you've got SNP sources, you know, turning around and going, you know, he's thrown himself on the mercy of other MSPs. You know, there's a lot of... I thought it was interesting that Andy McIver, uh, formerly Scottish Tories director of comms, who came out in a column uh, earlier this week basically saying, you know, we need to show sympathy to Michael Matheson and he shouldn't be, resign over what is fundamentally a bit of a trivial error and he was pointing out that Henry McLeish um, when he resigned as first minister at the start of the century that was an error that probably today you wouldn't resign over David McCletchy very similar Wendy Alexander very similar and there is a degree of hope I think among the SNP that they just want MSPs to kind of except that this was, as Hamza Yusuf has repeatedly said, an honest mistake. I think the difficulty is, you know, as we've touched on already, that it's not just the kind of bungle in the first place, the fact that this huge bill was racked up by his sons, he didn't know about it, now he's found out about it, he's paid the money back. I think that is an issue, but it's a separate issue to the fact that he's then misled people and, you know, lied to the press about it, and he's not kind of been upfront and honest when he's been asked about it. And I think that is a problem for a government minister. Mm -hmm. Effectively, what you're saying there is that you thought in that instance that being misleading was justified. Yes, yeah. I mean, what else can you justify yeah. in your head for that to and be the appropriate course of action? That's a problem for the government to accept that lying with conditions is acceptable, is a change of the accepted kind of approach of 
of government particularly, I think we said, you, you said last week on this podcast that we accept a degree of spin. We expect it. We, we, we don't go into conversations with government sources, ministers, MSPs, without, you know, assuming that they're going to be completely, you know, straightforward with us. We expect them to spin and twist and dodge and die. But lying with justification, I don't think that's something that's within the social contract of of politics. I just don't think that's something that I think MSPs will let go. I don't think the press will let it go either. No, no. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I think particularly with this process ongoing, I think there is a risk that people do get bored of it. I think particularly in this, this modern media political ecosystem where you've got media access to how many people are reading stories mm. and clicking on things and engaging with stuff. To be honest, yeah, that, that technique of just brazening stuff out, we've seen in the UK government that it, it can be successful. What do you think this does for Hamza Youssef's kind of authority and the narrative around his government? We saw, we've not talked about what Anas Sarwal talked about at FMQs today because it is slightly separate, but he brought up a discussion internally that Hamza Youssef had with officials around a statistic that he was effectively retroactively producing or had asked them to produce to, for, to allow him to correct the record. Anas Sarwal used that as an opportunity to kind of list all of the issues over transparency and accountability. So we had ferries, we had Ferguson Marine, we had Bifab, we had WhatsApps, we had Michael Matheson. And it was obviously intended to kind of go, this is what Hamza Yusuf stands for. He stands for anti-transparency and he stands for chaos. Do you think that's working? Do you think that's a narrative that's taking hold? I mean, I think Hamza Yusuf's problem, as he's been First Minister, is he's kind of gone from one drastic situation to yeah. another in terms of his government. Obviously started off being the situation around the police investigation into the SNP. He's had problems around policies that they've had taken a view turn and ditch. And Michael Masson's kind of the latest thing he's having to contend with. It's probably a broader point to make, but yeah. I think in some ways one of the SNP's concerns will be that the, the die is cast in terms of the general election next year. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what Hamza Youssef can really do to change the narrative that's developing in Scottish politics, the kind of rise of Labour, the potential decline of the SNP. Obviously these things are not set in stone, and politics is not always completely predictable. But I think the main worry for them will be that the public are looking on and seeing this as just another example of, yeah, things not going right in his government. I think as well, you you know, we you witness Hamza Youssef in, in First Minister's questions, and I mean, this is this is not a partisan take on my part. It's very much a just a <laughs> I, I think at least an objective reading is that he's not been very good at it recently. He's had a really difficult time because he's defending things that fundamentally don't have a defence. And one of Nicola Sturgeon's great strengths as First Minister was the ability to effectively brush off these accusations. She was able to change the topic of conversation. She had a great way of shutting down debate within the chamber and just belittling effectively her political opponents. Hamza Yusuf doesn't quite have that ability because he doesn't quite have that authority, which further weakens him as in this kind of vicious cycle. I, I think, I, mean, I don't know what you think about this, but I think I think Nicola Sturgeon would have sacked Michael Matheson. I think point. you're right, yeah. I think she had, I don't mean this in a bad way, I, just, I mean in, in the sense of politics. I think she had a ruthlessness that he has maybe lacked in this particular instance. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she wouldn't have done it. Maybe she would have done the same technique. I don't know. I'm just saying it. Yeah. I suspect she would have. You get the sense that um, she would have noticed the kind of escalating scale of the political damage being done faster than maybe Hamza Yusuf has managed to do. 
Yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's all we've got time for in terms of Michael Matheson. Let's hear the latest from our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, who will give us the latest from the House of Commons. Hello and welcome to the Westminster section podcast. It has been quite a mad week. I feel like I say that every time, but we've had both the autumn statement and new immigration figures both of which have created problems for Rishi Sunak. The autumn statement was portrayed by Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, in giving it as this fantastic thing for the country. There was a national insurance cut for 27 million people. So if you're on £35,000, you're going to save about £450 a year. That's quite nice, really. That's a good thing to have. There were tax breaks for firms investing in new equipment that in theory is supposed to generate uh, investment in the UK, but also cost the taxpayer £11 billion. So that depends very much on if you believe in trickle-down economics. But really, away from the rhetoric, away from the support and the promises that they were cutting tax, which they did to an extent, it's still the highest tax burden on record. And the forecast, the government, which has made so much about being the government of growth, it was going to deliver growth for Britain, are absolutely damning. When you look at the OBR figures, this year is better than expected. A growth is going to be 0.6 of GDP, and they thought it'd be 0.2. But next year, it was expected to be 1.8. It's going to be 0.7. The year after, it was supposed to be 2.5. It's going to be 1.4. And I think the tax burden percent of GDP, I think 33.7% of tax will be, you know, the GDP by 2028-29. So everything's pretty bad. And the government tried to portray this as a fantastic thing and a great way to help. And they're freezing alcohol and they're freezing fuel duty, even though they were always going to freeze fuel duty and they were always going to freeze alcohol duty. But what they don't mention was fiscal drag, which aside from sounding like a fantastic uh, economically focused uh, act at a gay night, is also something where basically by freezing the tax brackets, more people are being brought into them as wages go up. So 4 million people will be paying more in tax than they were. And because the public services were cut at the last statement by the Chancellor, everyone's going to have less money and the public services will get worse as well. So there's very little to be cheerful about. And I'm really sorry if I've lost you with the maths, but I mean, it's really grim. And when you put the figures down, I'm looking at my notes here. It is uh, very upsetting. Beyond that, on Thursday... New migration figures were published and they've hit a record high, shock, horror and awe. And so the Prime Minister has promised to bring net migration down and spend 180 odd million on a Rwanda scheme that was blocked by the courts and was always, always unviable, has now failed to bring migration down. And it's causing an almighty ruckus among the Tory parties. Swana Bravman is having a go. The New Conservatives group are having a go. Jacob Rees-Mogg is having a go. Basically, all these people that were briefly in position to do something about it are having a go. But the reality is, no one knows how to reduce migration. And dare I say, there's arguments that you shouldn't. You're not going to hear those from the Labour Party because they're playing a game. And you won't hear them for the SNP because when I approached them for a comment on this, they said the only way to fix a sort of thing is independence, which I'm beginning to realise might just might be a stock answer. If that wasn't enough, the new Home Secretary found himself in a spot of bother after a Labour MP at PMQs asked why so many children in his own constituency in Stockton were in poverty. And James Cleverly, the new Home Secretary, said, or at least he claims to have said, 
because they have a S word MP. Obviously, that's not ideal parliamentary language. And in fact, it's also something that people don't believe. The MP for Stockton, the Labour MP, has said that he doesn't believe it. And actually, he called it an S word uh, hole. And that he's, and he's demanded that James Cleverly come down to Stockton and apologise to the people of that market town uh, in County Durham. I think that's unlikely to happen, but, you know, what a great start to the job for James Cleverly, a future leader of the party. Stay tuned to The Scotsman, and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. So, yeah, thank you very much, Alex, for that in terms of the autumn statement. Uh, Alistair, not a huge amount of news within the autumn statement for Scotland. Um, headline figure, £545 million of consequentials. The Scottish government says that you know, barely covers the sides or touches the sides. Only £11 million, uh, in health consequentials beyond pay deals that were agreed down south, which have already been funded in Scotland. It's looking like crisis time, isn't it, ahead of the budget um, in Scotland, which is set for the 19th of December? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was a uh, autumn statement that had a lot of stuff that applied across the UK, that cut to national insurance, elements of the kind of business tax breaks. Um, there were some moves, such as the move in business rates, that there'll be some pressure on the Scottish government to replicate or to pass on in some way. Mm. And there was also that move to freeze alcohol duty, which was obviously widely welcomed by the whisky industry, for example, in Scotland. But yeah, I mean, we're gearing up for a Scottish budget next month that's going to be in a kind of climate of extremely tight financial strain on the Scottish Government. We've had the impact of pay deals this year, We've got the kind of wider pressures in the government, pressures around the health service, around various aspects of public services. And I think if you listen to what Shona Robinson, the Deputy First Minister and the Finance Secretary, has been saying, you know, she's very much teeing people up for that. Absolutely. And making it clear that the situation the Scottish Government is working within is extremely difficult. And they're going to have to make difficult decisions. I think it's also really important to note as well that this isn't a Scotland-only position. I mean, we heard Mark Drakeford in the Senate um, earlier this week, you know, basically turning around to opposition parliamentarians um, going, there is no more money, there is no money. There's nowhere that we can spend additional money on priorities while, you know, continuing to spend what we already have. Speaking to some sources here, they think the situation in Wales is worse than it is up in Scotland and that, you know, that's a Labour-run administration and Asawa will get hammered with that if he calls for additional spending up here without pointing out where the cuts are. But this is fundamentally a devolved finances crisis rather than a Scottish government finances crisis. Having said that, Scotland does have ultimately tax-raising powers in a way that it never used to do. And also, you know, it's fundamentally a, a game of priorities. The Scottish government prioritises welfare spending in a way that isn't funded by Westminster. They spend proportionately more on welfare funding than they get from Westminster. That money could always go to other frontline services if they wanted to, even though I imagine no one in this place would stand up and say that they don't want to pay the Scottish child payment. But we are looking at hundreds of millions of cuts coming, um, if not billions of cuts coming at the budget. We had £680 million already in-year cuts from Shona Robes that she announced this year. We had, I think it was over a billion pounds of cut last year outlined by John Swinney um, when he was still Finance Secretary. I mean, this is... Public services are on the brink in Scotland and in, and in Wales and in the rest of the UK. And we had a UK government that, that fundamentally refused to invest significant amounts of money in it. 
And of course, we still don't know what's going to happen on income tax. There wasn't any kind of signals around that from Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor. There was some suggestion before the autumn statement that he might give some kind of hint mm. about the UK government's thinking in that. There wasn't any. So the Scottish government are going to be acting in the dark a little bit when it comes to that. Uh, and one of the pressures the Scottish government always has is that they've got all these huge um, financial pressures, but they've also got, I mean, frankly, pressure from the media. That Absolutely, whenever the UK yeah. government does yeah. something, there is pressure on them to, to replicate it. it and to yeah. match it. So if they ever want to try and raise their own taxes in one area, the pressure from the media is huge not to differ too much from the UK government mm. on certain issues. And that's understandable in a lot of ways because obviously the tax disparity between Scotland and the rest of the UK is an issue that people do worry about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they have to they have to keep those kind of pressures in mind. And it's worth saying on income tax that the, the because of the way the Barnet formula works, it's actually quite complicated in terms of what it means for the overall Scottish budget. It's actually good news for the Scottish Exchequer if there is a cut to income tax in England and it isn't followed in Scotland because of something known as the block grant adjustment, which would effectively mean that the deduction in the block grant would be lower if taxes are lower in England, which would improve the overall financial settlement for Scotland. So again, Scotland are in this position where it's a catch-22. They either follow England's tax cuts, be, get the political kudos that they would inevitably get for that, but be worse off financially, or keep to their much higher taxes, which you know would be several points higher than, than England if there was a tax cut down south, but gain key cash for public services. It's an impossible position to a degree. I mean, it's a problem with modern politics, isn't it? You, you kind of, you have this trade-off between wanting more money for public services and persuading people to pay, the, pay the requisite <laughs> taxes for that. It's just, a, it's an age-old problem that every government has to struggle with. There's just the added complication in Scotland of the, the various trade-offs and the interactions between devolved and reserved matters yes. uh, and how the, bar, the impact of Barnet consequentials and you know, every single Scottish budget, there's a, a briefing from the Scottish Fiscal Commission the next day, which is, you know, headache-inducing if you're not a financially-minded person or if you're not an economist, even though they do a very good job, it has to be said, <laughs> of putting it in language that journalists can understand. But, um, yeah, it's extremely complicated. And they say themselves it's extremely complicated. Yeah. These things are not simple. Yeah. They're not simple to understand. And the impact that certain moves can have are not straightforward. Well, sadly, Alistair, like last year when I... He headed off on holiday. I won't be here to help you out with the budget. <laughs> it's noted. Uh, I'm aware. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you. Good luck. <laughs> but thank you very much uh, for joining us this week. Uh, thank you very much at home for listening and putting up with me for three years. You'll be in the good hands of Mr. Grant going forward, I think, and obviously Rachel Amory as well. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Master. Thank you very much, Alex from London. And uh, see you all soon. Bye bye.